joined today on the Football CFB podcast by Owen Coyle Jr. Owen, thanks for joining me. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for all for having us on. I want to start by talking about your intermediary role, first of all. What does that involve and how is the current situation affecting that role? Yeah, I mean, uh, so first of all, a sports intermediary is, is uh, essentially an agent within sport. Um, predominantly, I do work within football. Um, so as a football agent, in terms of a loose terminology for it, naturally, there's a lot of negative connotations that come with being a football agent. Um, and, and like any business, my thing that I, that I say to everybody is there's some really good people in the business side of things as football agents, and there's some not so good people. And in, in, in no matter what industry you have, that's, that's often the case. So my day-to-day kind of run-ins of my sport, sportsman management company as we look after a very variety of different sports athletes we support them in, in different ways shapes and forms to spend depending on what they need and require some bespoke service to them some it's just dealing with a contract negotiations um, and that's the only sort of support they want and potentially moving them from club to club and um, some it's a little bit more in depth around sports psychology support um, and, and other ways and means that they need help with um, naturally they're very well catered for in a lot of the clubs or the sports environments that they're currently already in but it's some to, to support them and manage them on the outside with obviously um, kind of day-to-day runnings which is a, a sports star especially for those high up in the chain can be really demanding and challenging so that that's pretty much a, a day-to-day run of what we do. That sounds very good and obviously one of the connotations that comes with any form of agencies, contracts etc, is that something that's a big part of what you do? Yeah, most definitely. So you're always negotiating your contracts for, for the players to either obviously extend where they're currently at or potentially move on um, to, to a new club. And depending on what that contract looks like, depends where the transfer fees then come involved in, in one thing or another. And again, not just football predominantly, there's other contracts, there's sponsorship deals, there's, there's kit deals and, and all the rest of it that comes with um, the different sides of a, a sports person's life. But um, I didn't actually answer your question fully on the first one. And, and that's kind of heavily affecting us right now because at this moment, with the, the coronavirus nobody knows how that is going to stand um, obviously whenever the season restarts there's a very good chance contracts for both footballers and, and coaches alike um, and then potentially some other sports and um, the contracts are going to lapse and, and it means they're actually left in limbo so we're waiting to see how that kind of is going to further develop um, based on what kind of comes back from potentially the football league and the premier league and um, predominantly but also within scotland and, and your other countries around the globe um, and then just start to take it from there I want to talk to you about, obviously, your father, who owned Coyle Senior. What was it like growing up having a, a footballing dad? Because I imagine that would be very cool, but at the same time, quite strange. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a question I do get asked a lot, and I think the simple answer to it is it was just my dad. <laughs> it was no different to, to how everybody's dad is with them, with them all of them kind of in a day-to-day life and, and everything like that. You, you're in the house room and he is what he is and the only difference is he does probably get that little bit of limelight um, from, from when he was playing um, which I was probably too young to really understand or even see that. Then NT's coaching and managing and it started to probably come to light a little bit when we moved down from Glasgow um, down to the northwest England. Um, I was probably about 12 years old at the time we moved down from St Johnston to Burnley and then it kind of started to make me realise actually it's quite a big thing if I'm actually having to move where all my mates are, where my family is, and move down to a different country just for a job. It's, it must be something that's actually quite important. Um, and then when you get down here and you get caught up in the, the football from, from the Championship and the Premier League, which, again, everybody up the road knows how big that is. Again, probably somewhat gets gets 
a little bit of criticism because a lot of the time England seems to be a vocal point to say how strong the league is in comparison to other leagues, which I somewhat disagree with in some ways as well, and the SPFL and different things are, are fantastic run leagues as well on that front. Um, but certainly when you come down, it kind of you get you get involved in it and you realise how how big a, a role it is he was taking on when he eventually stepped into the Premier League with Burnley and Bolton, um, and then obviously throughout his other roles um, kind of over that time. See, when your, your dad's managing in the Premier League, is that something that, as you say, brings limelight? But is that one of the moments in your teenage years where you start to think, wow, God, look at the exposure that's coming with this. My dad's a Premier League manager. Yeah, I mean, I was at high school at the time when he was he was at Burnley, um, and the same that goes with Bolton, who really, when he left high school, when I left high school, sorry, um, he then eventually stepped out of the Premier League and these other roles he's taken on. So at that time, again, as a, probably a teenager, you've got an understanding of what's going on, but you don't really get caught up in it too much. You mm-hmm. just go and look at your day-to-day life, playing FIFA and going and playing for your school team and, and doing whatever you're doing, and you, you don't really comprehend what's going on around you. Now, sat in the position I'm in at 23, I'm still relatively young. There's a lot of things that, that I've realised over that kind of time frame that, that probably would look at differently if I was, if I was sat here now. Um, one of the big things is social media and the criticism that comes in social media again as a, a young a young guy I was quite very very reactive to putting things on and responding to people around criticism of my dad and, and that isn't actually right for me to do that because there's a lot of people out there that are doing it for that sole reason to get you yep. to respond to get you to be upset and again that's something that I've, I've kind of learned over the years and, and even when he was over at Chennai and in India um, over the last few months and he's had massive successes over there um, again there's been a lot of things posted on my social media when I'm when I'm kind of speaking about how well he's doing um, again fans from different clubs are giving their opinion of how he done when he was there and, and one thing or another and again that, that's people's perception opinions and, and I don't have any problem with that um, and it's certainly something that I've kind of grown to more or less just enjoy now and embrace it and the fact that anybody's talking about you you or your family, I suppose, is a positive regardless. That's very true. And in terms of yourself as a player, what were you like as a player when you were growing up? What position did you play and did you have a chance of making it in the game? I mean, usually, no matter who you are, as, as even if you'll know yourself, you, your friends, everybody's got a hard luck story. Somebody's either been injured, they've had an academy trial. I, I didn't have anything. I was just bang average. Um, I played up front. I was a reasonable grassroots player. I played Saturday and Sunday. I played for my school team. I loved the game. I still play five or six, three, four times a week. Um, I play wherever I can. Obviously, my coaching and intermediate things stopped me playing from 11 side football. But no, to, to answer your question, I never had a career in the game. Um, I'm technically okay physically. I'm nowhere near the level. I'm not quick enough. I'm quite slow in that respect. I've got a good understanding of the game. But, but that's where I am. I love the game like everybody else. I play wherever I can. I watch it all the time um, but yeah there's certainly no hard luck story here I just just quite wasn't at that level. Uh, you mentioned the fact that um, your dad was in India you went to visit him obviously in India what was it like over there the culture and and the way they embrace football because something completely different to what he's been used to and yourself. Yeah, massively I mean he, he's been over in America in the MLS was just in Dynamo uh, back in 2015 through he probably I think it was 2017 he was over there and that that was a great experience to go over and experience the MLS and kind of all its glory as well and completely run differently and um, different fan base different ways of approaching the games and celebrating the games and and all that side of things and again not to say it's any better or worse than anywhere else it's just different um, and to have that experience is fantastic and India was no real different to that it was again a completely change of culture they had a different approach to how they do things in terms of um, 
kind of viewing the game, how they how they do things on a day to day basis, but then on a game day. Um, but the one thing I would say, my experience from being around the setup was it's probably one of the most professional setups I've seen in terms of how they look after the players and how they do things. Um, the standard of football is getting better, and um, they've got a homegrown rule that you need to have so many Indian players playing within the squads. Uh, so naturally, you do have a bit, bit of a mixture of abilities with some foreign players that are that are fantastic assets, as you can imagine, in the league and and usually the strongest players. Um, mixed in with some Indian internationals and then mixed in with some emerging talents. Um, so it's, it's quite a mixed kind of ability group, if you will. Um, but certainly over the years, Lee's going to get better, Lee's going to get stronger. They've got good amounts of money in it. They've got a lot of kind of stars involved in running the clubs. Um, and, and certainly the, the fans are, are huge as well over there and they're, they're crazy for footballers, you know. Absolutely. And the main reason I wanted to get you on the podcast was I was really inspired by your story working obviously with the, the England amputee team. How did that come about? Because some of the stories that I've heard you speak about in interviews before and, and reading interviews, some of the stories that the players you've got are just unbelievably inspirational. Yeah, it's massively inspirational. I think first and foremost, um, to start off with, it's a Scots managing an England team, which uh, doesn't usually bode too well for myself when I start speaking about the England national team. Um, but no, it's something I've been massively privileged to be involved in. Um, how it came about, I actually left high school at 16. Um, and going back to the earlier story, I knew I wasn't going to be a footballer professional. Everybody growing up wants to be a professional, or a lot of people do anyway. At probably 14, 15, I came to the understanding myself that I just wasn't going to be there and I wasn't going to do that however I wanted to still be involved in the game so my desire and passion was coaching and um, from there I worked at Lancashire FA which is like the football association for the mm -hmm. county um, and, and started to do my coaching badges and learned about the development of the grassroots game and then from there actually the current Halifax town manager Peter Wild and um, he worked in there with me um, and then I was kind of 16 years old actually I was a little bit of an afro back then as well believe it or not um, and I wandered into the office and got to know the lads got on really well with them looked, looked after me fantastically and Pete um, who I now actually look after with, with my sports management company Pete said to me why don't you come and get involved in the at the time it was the Great Britain amputee team um, and just see what it's all about so at 16 I went and done that kind of fast forward 18 months I went to the World Cup with them just as a, a, a spare body I suppose to help them out in Mexico um, which is a fantastic experience where the team came 10th um, and then from there another coach got appointed when Pete eventually moved on to Oldham and his youth team capacity um, and from that coach that that came in, Joe, he stepped aside a year later in 2017, or sorry, late 2016, I got the opportunity to take the head coach role on it at 20 years old, which was a <clears throat> massive, massive achievement. Um, and from there, really, the programme's going from strength to strength. Um, we are all voluntary, so we don't get paid for the, what we do. We're not supported by the National Football Association, believe it or not, um, which, again, is a, a different story for a different day. Uh, but, but we do what we can, and, and we'll get some, as you alluded to, some fantastic athletes and some inspirational stories. Uh, we're now ranked second in Europe. Um, sixth in the world so despite the kind of challenges we face and going up against other teams who are professional um, we, we cope really well and we deal with the demands of that and, and we have got the, one of the best teams in the world without a doubt and on a day we, we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody um, regardless of the kind of circumstances we do face. You mentioned the fact you took over the head coach role at the age of 20 that's an incredible achievement before you've even managed a game the fact that 20 years old you're the head coach of any team I mean were you daunted at all taking that on at that age or were you just excited and, and buzzing to get started? I mean I've always been not short in confidence in, in many ways so kind of getting in there and getting involved didn't really frighten me or scare me and uh, naturally the only thing that was done was, was I really ready for it 
Um, now, again, the reason I put myself out there is because I believe there was. Um, but once you actually get involved in that role and you realise what task you're undertaking and leading a team to a European Championship or a World Cup, it's, it's, it's a big, big ask. And ultimately, everybody's looking at you to, to deliver. Um, so at that moment in time, it was it was a challenge. It was something that I was really excited by. And I suppose the, just the buzz of it um, got, me, got me going, first and foremost. And I mean... Again, a year later, in 2017, we went to the European Championship final and played against Turkey in the final, um, which was at the Vodafone Arena, where Besiktas play. Um, and again, that final, there was 42,000 people present for it. So it was an incredible experience to, to again, lead the team out at 20 years old in front of that, that packed house in, in a European Championship final, which in turn we did fall just short of. We actually conceded a, a last-minute uh, goal to, to kind of lose out and finish second of that tournament. But really, I suppose that tournament um, in all its glory really showed to me that I was capable of doing a good job and, and everything that I kind of thought about before and processed before um, did come to fruition and, and no doubt there's an element of luck involved in that. I'm a big believer that you do earn your luck um, but I was very fortunate and the team were very fortunate to, to make it all the way. That said, um, we went and, and kind of earned the right to play as, as one of my phrases go um, and, and we've done that and really enjoyed that experience and, and from there built on to the World Cup in, in 2018 and we've now got the Euros later on this year. You mentioned the fact that you've, you've led the team out at a couple of international tournaments, you've got another one to come. When, it, when you're leading any team out at an international tournament, what's the sort of preparation you have to put in as a coach? Because you're away for a sustained period of time. I imagine it's, it's different to a normal international game. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's different to club football first and foremost, and then on the international friendly games, it is completely different to that. Um, amputee football is quite uh, varied in terms of levels of support for different countries. So if you look within Europe predominantly, you've got Russia, Turkey um, and Poland outside of ourselves are the main teams. Now, all those three teams are, are professional in some way, shape or form. So their players get paid, their staff get paid, they train daily, they've got access to all the national facilities and national support mechanisms in comparison to ourselves. That said, what we do have is we've got 20 volunteer staff who are all experienced and experts in their own area. We've got a provisional squad currently of 20 players that are some of the best in the world. Um, so we don't really struggle on that front. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge to, to go up against some of those sides and, and perform against them. Um, and in terms of the preparation that we need when, when we're there is, is all built into the kind of year-long programme. So we started the preparations back in September last year um, to build up to September this year, which is taking place in Krakow in Poland um, and really that, that preparation from that period of September 20, uh, 2019 is all just to set us up for that two weeks when we go there to make sure we're, we're ready to perform and, and everything that goes around that in terms of sports science, nutrition, recovery, tactical understanding the game, um, selecting the best players to go even little things like downtime and how you're going to deal and cope with that, which I suppose isolation has been a belting idea for us um, to get the lads used to being stuck <laughs> in the room or stuck at home uh, with a very little going on. Um, so so all, all those side of things are obviously things that we look in depth at and across the year we, we kind of meet those challenges head on and make sure we're best prepared. Something I want to ask you, and I, want, I don't want this question to come out wrong, so I need to be careful how I word it. See in, see, see in terms of coaching at amputee level, yeah. In terms of the coaching philosophies that you've studied and spoken to your dad about and learned from, do you yeah. then have to adapt them, obviously, for, for the, the, the team you're working with? And I mean that in the, in the most... Yeah, no, uh, no. 
it's, it's a really valid question. I mean, all the players we've got, um, obviously the majority, not all, um, have played the game at some level. So some of them have professional. Um, a couple have been in professional environments. So again, just taking an example, Jamie Tregaskis, who's arguably one of our, our star attacking players. Um, Jamie was uh, 12 years old. He was in Manchester City's academy. He was kind of destined for the, the, the style, uh, the limelight, if you will, and for the stars yeah. to potentially at Man City's first team now again between 12 and actually getting in there a lot can happen as we well know but he was he was one of the real shining lights of the academy he went into tackle came out the other side had a little bit of a bruise in his leg over the course of a couple of weeks it didn't really go away uh, they looked at it again the doctor looked at it and they sent him for a scan came back and he had bone cancer um, so Jamie actually lost his leg at, at 12 years old um, when being in the academy set up and that's just one story for example but yep. the reason I'm doing that is because Jamie's played and he's understood the game and he's been coached at a young age um, and he's taken that into the amputee side of things now as well um, where actually there's certain adaptations to the game um, so the game's seven aside it's 50 minutes long um, you've got kick-ins instead of throw-ins naturally um, the, the crutch is an extension of the arm so if you use your crutch it's a handball um, goalkeepers are upper body amputees that must remain in the box at all times and outfielders are on one leg on crutches that's kind of the simple format of the game if you will mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, I really encourage anybody to check out on YouTube because it's fascinating to watch for a first timer um, but yeah from, from there all the sessions and our kind of philosophy is devised on what we believe to be the most successful way of playing um, there's certain elements and, and kind of areas of the pitch that we've analysed that we understand we get success from both attacking and defensively and everything that we then deliver at our training camps is, is based upon that we don't just go out and deliver sessions for the sake of delivering sessions we go out there with a real good understanding of what it is that we're good at what it is that we'd actually need to go away and improve and we kind of build on top of what we're good at already and we try and improve the areas that we need to improve naturally so everything's done with that, with that focus uh, in terms of adapting that naturally you're maybe adapting your linguistics and saying things like foot instead of feet but again as soon as you're in there the lads don't really care as soon as you come out with a comment it goes to over the head nine times out of ten if you're a newbie to it they'll maybe try and catch you out and make you feel a little bit nervous and anxious about <laughs> but but now it's once I'm getting going I'm just talking the lingo then they just go with it and go with whatever we're kind of saying uh, which, which is always good fun and that just adds to the camaraderie that we've got there um, but yeah the sessions are slightly adapted in terms of size time distance um, that we're looking at the load on the players being on the crutches can be quite heavy and we've got a sports science team to support with that alongside our medical team so in, in short yes a lot of adaptations to what we do um, but it's actually probably very similar to the mainstream game compared to what most people would expect No absolutely and in terms of the World Cup you mentioned that that was a successful campaign in the sense that you finished sixth how describe that World Cup campaign for me? Uh, the World Cup campaign for myself was probably the hardest kind of experience that I've gone through. Uh, we, we went there um, prior to, so when we took over back in 2016, um, prior to that World Cup taking place, we'd played over 30 games um, and we'd lost one, uh, the one game obviously being the final against Turkey. Yeah. So the success we had was was enormous really um, for the for the, the side we are and the resources we've got. Uh, we went into that World Cup and we faced, uh, we faced Ireland in the group, who we beat convincingly. 
uh, we faced Uruguay in the group, who again we beat convincingly, and then we played Mexico, who were the hosts. Um, and again, I think there was six thousand on on for that final um, for that final game in the group, which was a which was a great experience again to play in front of a reasonably sized crowd that are obviously really passionate about again <laughs> football and supporting their team. Um, and again, we managed to win that three 0 and they were one of the favourite teams to go and do well in the competition. So we hadn't conceded a goal in the group stage. We we're off to flyer. Uh, we then went into the round, the last round of 16, we played Argentina um, and we beat Argentina 2-0. It was a surreal game because we beat them 2-0 and we came off absolutely knackered and flat. Um, they were very direct. So again, a lot of the amputee football, as you imagine, being on crutches is played on the floor um, and teams are very, very much of the kind of way of playing and style of playing and getting the ball down and moving it. Um, Argentina, though, had, had other ideas. Um, because the game isn't probably showcased on a global level and you don't see teams from months to months time, whether, again, you're looking at the Premier League, you want to research a team and do analysis a team, you look at them the week before and you get it. Whether mm-hmm. we hadn't seen Argentina for over two years, we didn't know what they're capable of. We'd tried and done a little bit based on the last Copa America tournament they'd been at, uh, where they got to the final. Um, and we played them um, and we won 2-0 and they were getting the ball from the goalkeeper. They are playing direct into a box, which, again, there's no right or wrong way of playing. But Alas just didn't expect it. We didn't expect it as coaches. We dealt with it. We won the game 2-0. So in all means, it was, it was a massive success. Um, but again, the way the, the sport's set up is you play from day to day. So we went into the next day and we played Brazil, who were one of the favourites to win the tournament. We beat 5-1. Um, we took the lead 1-0 up. And bear in mind, up to that quarter-final game, we hadn't conceded a goal um, mm. in the four international matches we'd played. Um, and to go from conceding zero to conceding five was obviously something. And getting knocked out of the competition and the kind of process was something that was really, really hard to take on the chin and kind of bounce back on. We actually played the next day after that. We played Poland in a, in a kind of um, phase game to decide what position you finished. And we managed to beat Poland 2-0. Um, and then we played Russia, who again were the, the reigning world champions at the time, but they'd been knocked out um, from Turkey, who eventually went on to be in the final. Um, and, and Russia beat us 3-1 after extra time. Again, we're leading in that game up to the 49th minute. Um, they equalised in the 15th, went to extra time. And they just maybe had the edge on us over that, over that little bit, of course, um, of, of what we had left. But in terms of the tournament, it was it was a great experience on reflection because one of the biggest kind of quotes that I, that I really believe is is you can't wait, uh, learn how to win until you learn how to lose, um, and and kind of we we done that and the Turkey experience was experience that we were the underdogs, we weren't expected to win, we kind of walked away thinking we'd achieved more than what we ever should have, so we're proud of that, whether Brazil was a different sort of loss, it was a loss that we knew actually if we were to play them the day after, there's a good chance we'd beat them, um, and that sounds daft coming off the back of a 5-1 loss, it sounds ridiculous, um, but, but I truly believe that if we play them tomorrow, um, we would go there and it certainly wouldn't be 5-1, we would have more the capability to, to make sure we win that game, so, so on that front, really, really disappointing, but it's given us a bit between our teeth certainly having a year off in 2019 to now go for this European Championship um, in Krakow in September. You mentioned the fact that you get to the final of your first European Championship, you learn a lot from that World Cup. What are the aims get into the European Championship this year for you and the team? Uh, the aims are going to go and win it. Um, always is, always has been um, for, for the England teams. England teams have been successful in the past. They uh, won the World Cup three times in the 80s, um, but haven't actually won major silverware since. Um, 
kind of shown off a little bit, but the trophies behind me are, are, are things that we've won over the last three years at other tournaments um, that aren't major tournaments, but certainly big tournaments and, and warm-up tournaments before major competitions. So we've had a, had a successful kind of three years, as I alluded to earlier. Um, I think we've lost. We lost against Turkey, lost against Brazil, and lost against Russia. So out of our 37 games that we've played, we've lost three games and won 34. So it's not it's not a bad record on that front. The, the issue is that because it's knockout football, as soon as you lose a game, you're out of there and you've got a chance of winning. So uh, we, we go go to the Euros, fully believing we can go and win it. We play Greece, Azerbaijan and France, who are in our group. Um, again, without being complacent, we know if we perform, there's no reason why we can't finish top of that group. And if we get outside the group, then there's a chance we'll play the likes of Spain and Poland. Um, again, potentially if we play for Poland in front of a, a packed crowd of 25,000 at Krakowia Stadium in Krakow, um, and potentially the other side of the draw, you've got the, the Russian team and the Turkish team again, who are probably the two standouts that we could potentially meet in that final if we were fortunate enough and earned the right to go all the way. So, um, yeah, really, really exciting, but we're prepared for it. We're doing a lot of work despite the isolation. Uh, we'll get five weekly sessions on Google Meet that the lads are joining in on, uh, both basic football sessions they can do at home with limited equipment and resources and um, some body weighted sessions again some basic weight sessions so we'll try to keep as active as we can to make sure that when everything does go back to normal hopefully sooner rather than later we can we can get back into business something i want to ask you about and i don't want to draw you into getting too political here or drawing you into something you don't want to discuss but you mentioned the fact you don't get fa funding so i'm not going to ask you to go down and comment on the reasons behind that but what I do want to ask is, because you don't have that funding in terms of the facilities you use, do you rely on the clubs help you out? Who who helps you out with resources? And, and then, I mean, in terms of the relationship with the, with the FA, I've got no issues talking about it at all, as long as you've got time to, really. Um, the, the FA supported the team up until 2006, um, and then after that, they dropped the team just kind of at the drop of a hat somewhat uh, due to low participation rates within the domestic league and uh, not actually having a fully fledged domestic league um, and not being part of the Paralympics. Uh, now since then um, we've got a domestic league that runs its eight teams, it's got over 100 players playing which for amputee footballs in England is phenomenal. Um, we, the league runs monthly um, we've got two divisions, a premiership and a championship and the Paralympics sits with outside of our our kind of jurisdiction, that's something that's a, a global challenge to face and you need so many confederations and you need so many elements of the sport and pole position to then put a Paralympic application in which the confederations are working but my point is it doesn't sit here within England to decide whether yeah. we get into the Paralympics or not um, and, and really from there as well it's probably worth highlighting um, back in 2017 we changed from Great Britain to England and the reason for that is I came up the road and I set up, helped set up the Scottish Amateur Football Association which are now running Scotland of a national team which is fantastic they're trying to do some great development work in grassroots level as well um, and there's some really good people involved in that part of this of a team Dundee United of a team um, and, and they're really developing the game up the road as well which is something I'm really proud that, to say that I helped kind of kickstart that off um, and, and that's going as well uh, which is fantastic so to, to answer the question around facilities um, naturally we face challenges and funding we've got uh, fortunately Adidas on board to give us all a kit for free uh, which yeah. is amazing of them um, and, and when I say they give us a kit anything we want they give us it which is phenomenal um, from from our organisation such as that and that's only happened this year um, each player and staff needs to raise around £1,500 per head uh, to help with accommodation costs or training weekends um, to help with going away to these different tournaments
tournaments that we go to and then on top of that we bring in sponsorship so I mean sponsors Simply Business who are an insurance company from London uh, that donate between 40 and £50,000 per year depending on what competitions taking place which again is incredible and um, without that support we wouldn't be able to do what we do uh, we've got an, a college called Reseith College which is based in Nantwich probably about 20 minutes from Stoke um, and again Reseith as well are based so we have all our training camps there we've got all our kind of banners up again it makes it feel like home we've got access to sports science labs changing rooms team meeting rooms wh whatever we want really um, so the, the setups again for, for the resources we have it's, it's incredibly professional it's something that we're really really proud of um, and again that, that helps when we go to take those better countries on well, as I say, I think that's, it's, it's, I'm glad you've highlighted that and I hope that when this podcast comes out that people hear the message and I hope pressure is put on the FA because I think that's quite quite sad really that they don't support it because they're a massive organisation, they do a lot of good work at grassroots level um, in, in the game and I think it's something they should be getting involved with. And The last question I've got for you and is you're obviously doing really well with the England amputee team I'm not trying to put you in an awkward position, but long term, are you aiming to continue in the coaching ladder or is the intermediary stuff something you see yourself doing more long term or, or is the hybrid of both the, the aim going forward? It's a really good question. It's, uh, I mean, in terms of myself, what, the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to do the intermediary side of life was to ultimately build a company up that, that's successful first and foremost. Um, and the reason I do the coaching is because I love doing it. And, very fortunately, you're actually not allowed to coach being an intermediary. Um, but the reason I am and continue to is because it's within impairment-specific football and it's not within the mainstream game because naturally you can understand it can be a conflict of interest even at the grassroots game, try to get a young player that's maybe talented, what, whatever. Um, so in terms of that, because it's impairment-specific, it doesn't affect my role any. Um, but yeah, I mean, long-term, what I would love to do is continue to build my coaching um, understanding and improving and learning all the time on that as I said I'm 23 I've got so much learning still to do um, I've recently enrolled on in my A licence which was actually meant to take place next week start, starting my A licence uh, with the FA um, however that's obviously been put off with, with everything that's happening currently but yeah is to continue to climb through a ladder gain experience continue with England team and ensure we get some sort of success that's that's one of the things that I do want to to make happen I'd love to bring a major tournament back to back to England whether it be the World Cup or the European Championship or potentially both um, and then eventually yeah further down the line I'd love to merge both intermediate side of life and the coaching side of the game together because what that would actually give me is a, a an understanding of the coach on this on the field the tactical the daily runnings on the pitch um, and intermediary off it in terms of managing budgets and um, dealing with chairmen dealing with financial advisors dealing with the, the players and, and the kind of personal life as well so if I've managed to build up a, an understanding of that probably still at a fairly young age for a, a professional coach if you will which would be my aspiration is something that that again I'd be really excited by but I've still got a long way to go until I get anywhere near that. Uh, last quick question sorry actually is you mentioned earlier on if people haven't had the chance to look at amputee football, they should have a look. Where can they access the England amputee football team and where can they access um, images and videos of games? Yeah, I mean, so the England team or even the Scotland team, obviously, they're naturally there'll be there'll be people that that you'll be listening in um, from from up the road from from where we're both at, um, <laughs> and, and anything in terms of amputee football related, you type in Scotland Amputee Football Association or England Amputee Football Association, straight away it comes up on Google, uh, YouTube. Again, again, even if it's not Scotland and England, you'll see phenomenal games on there. You'll see some phenomenal talents from from other countries, um, and again, I would really really encourage people to watch it. We we have our own social media page in terms of the England team. Again. 
again, same with Scotland. Um, and again, that content's probably published every every couple of hours a day. So if you want to get well into it and well involved, which most people actually get quite gripped by it once you start watching because it's incredible, then then we appreciate everybody's support. And I suppose the big thing that, that we always do ask whether you decide to follow it or not, if you can just tell somebody about it is, is really good for us as well, just to promote the game and, and get more people speaking about it and aware of it more important. Well, I have to say thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a, a fascinating chat for me and using my social media platforms, I'll definitely be pointing people in the direction to have a look because as you've said, it's it's inspiring. The stories behind it are inspiring and I hope it continues to grow and I hope your career continues to grow because you're doing a great job so far at such a young age and it's inspiring for, for me to listen to. So thank you very much for joining me. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, uh, hopefully I'll be back on soon and look forward to the old man being on in due course. Brilliant. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make 